Hey, folks. Welcome to episode 14 of Ice Ice Beta, a podcast with a catchy name that may not age well. Along those lines, I've been dry tooling way more than ice climbing this winter, largely because it's been frustratingly warm in New England. Call this my adaptation strategy, but really, I feel like I'm just getting ahead of the curve since, trigger alert, dry tooling is the future of ice climbing. Hashtag, prove me wrong, please. Not to be all dire, dour, and doom and gloom, but globally, climate change is leading to fewer days below zero degrees Celsius, aka the planet is warming, unless you didn't realize that. Uh, but since ice forms below the freezing temp of water, it's not hard to see that the result is going to be fewer climbable days of ice. So what's an ice climber to do? Today, we chat with Taylor Luno, an ice climber from Vermont, former policy director of the American Alpine Club, and current conservation manager at the Wilderness Society. Taylor has spent the bulk of his adult working life in conservation efforts, protecting public land, and now supporting climate change mitigation strategies through forest management policies. During his time at the AAC, Taylor commissioned a first-of-its-kind study evaluating ice season length for one of the premier ice climbing destinations in the U.S., the Mount Washington Valley in New Hampshire. You might have seen the film that came out of this, Freeze Thaw, which shares the scientific findings and socioeconomic impact on guides in the area. It's definitely worth checking out. We talk about the study, how climbers can get involved in responding to climate change, along with mitigation and adaptation strategies in today's episode. But first, a message from our sponsor. Blue ice is the best kind of ice, and also my choice when it comes to fast and light ice climbing gear. The aerolites go in like hot knife through butter, and their climbing packs hit the sweet spot between function and lightweight. Designed to get to the point in the Alpine, the gear is tested by mountain professionals between the Alps and the Wasatch. If you're looking to get to the point too, and with a little less weight in your kit, check out Blue Ice's gear at blueice.com or your favorite local retailer. Thanks, Aaron. Now, you... <laughs> now on to the chat with Taylor. This is, this is game time. <laughs> um, speaking of game time, Bill Belichick is no longer the head coach of the New England Patriots, and it's another unseasonably warm winter here. So is it an end of an era for the Northeast ice climbing scene? Oh my gosh, your connection between the Patriots and, and ice climbing. <laughs> Maybe. Kind of could... threw that one together like just before the call. Let's see how, I don't know how it landed. <laughs> it is 100% the end of an era. It is 100%. Yeah, I'm still going to be a Pats fan, but um, it's it's the end of an era. And uh, who knows? I forget. I was, you know, I'm not much of a football fan. Hockey. I can talk hockey all day long. But I was listening to, um, I don't know, NPR the other day, and they were comparing two teams. Don't ask me which. But they had stats on their track records of who was more successful at playing in below freezing temperatures. And it was like some team from the Midwest just destroyed in below freezing temps. And then I think it was like, I don't know, Miami or so, some Southern team that just consistently lost when it was like hot. So who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe the National Football League teams that are down in the South are going to start to be more successful because they're just like playing in their climate. Who knows? <laughs> Is it an end of an era for ice climbers in New England as well who are Finding it difficult to uh, compete in their arena. Yeah, it's a. Oh, that, that is what a, a sad look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's a loaded. It's a loaded question. Um, yeah, 
I think the the thing that I I I hate to do is to come in doom and gloom and say yes, like things are are going to be dramatically different. Um, but in reality, they are changing um, significantly. I mean, uh, the past year was the warmest on record since Noah started collecting data however long ago. Um, you know, I was home in December. It's a month ago for the holidays. Typically, when I go home to visit family in Vermont, I always fly with my gear just in case. You know, you might be able to get out and climb a couple days. And last year, I was able to go out to Lake Willoughby and actually climb uh, with a friend. This year, it rained on us for like mm. a week. You know, I went rock climbing in Rumney in the middle of December. Oh, yeah. Ah, nice. <laughs> I know that that's not unheard of, but the way that things are going right now, it's, it's less predictable. Seasons have become more, you know, spotty. And ultimately, you know, winters in New England have shrunk by about three weeks over the past century. They're showing up later in the fall and spring's arriving earlier. So we're getting squeezed on both ends right now. And ultimately, winters in New England are warming much faster than their summers, somewhere in the range of three to seven degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. I mean, it's a, it's a very dramatic shift. So yeah, I think we're in a, in a new period of time here as ice climbers from New England. We'll go more into the details later on because there was a video, Freeze Thaw, that the American Alpine Club released a few months ago, as of the time of this recording and when this will come out, yeah. which, which you were partly responsible for. So we'll talk about that coming up, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you think about how to present that with less doom and gloom, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but so you're, you're a New England guy uh, from Vermont, close to Lake Willoughby. Were you always into the outdoors, and like, how did you get into to ice climbing? I grew up in uh, what's called the Northeast Kingdom. It's a funny title for a region, but it's up in the Northeast. You know why it, why it's called that? I forget why. I, you know, I don't actually know the history of where the quote unquote kingdom came from, but it does feel quite royal in the landscape. I mean, <laughs> I don't. It's uh, it's kind of rolling. You know, agricultural fields, kind of emphasized by you know, lush forests and lots of ponds and rivers, rolling mountains. It's kind of your typical Vermont agrarian scene, very rural yeah. up in the north. Great for mountain corner. biking. So good for mountain biking. I mean, I grew up skiing at a place called Burke Mountain. Well, I split time between Burke and Smuggler's Notch um, and Jay Peak too, but Burke really, like they've totally changed their culture as a community with the development of the mountain biking scene there and it's had such oh. a magnificent impact on their local economy. Kingdom Trails is just like a, a, an amazing place. That's where I started mountain biking when I was in college. Um, to your question, uh, if I've always been into the outdoors, I, I have. Uh, I mean, you grow up in a rural place like that, you're, you know, your time is really spent outdoors as a kid. And I was very fortunate to have uh, parents that were, were willing to, to invest in us as kids and spend time in the outdoors. My father was a, a forestry teacher, but also a game warden. So I actually grew up hunting and fishing with him. A lot of camping trips. Um, we were a skiing family, so grew up skiing quite a bit. But I, I was also a team sports kid. So I grew up playing hockey and being so close to, to Canada, you're either skiing or you're playing hockey. <laughs> so I, uh, I spent a lot of time indoors actually uh, between 
you know, middle school and even a couple of years after high school, I actually played in a development league called a, a junior hockey league. I actually took two years off after high school to play uh, in that league and traveled all over New England and Canada and uh, had aspirations of playing college. And, um, and I actually, I was on the track to do so and got injured. Um, and, and that actually set me on a quite different path at the point in time, I had already accepted to start college at St. Michael's College. And as I was going through this transition, I, I had an opportunity to go to another university to play hockey, or um, I could drop out and go back into a development league and pursue some D1 aspirations, as some of my colleagues at the time did. Uh, or I could stay put and pursue um, this like really well-developed biology and environmental studies program at St. Mike's. And at that time, when I was making that decision, I stumbled into uh, what was then called the, the, the Wilderness Club, or it was essentially an, out, an outing club, but it was a very highly developed program at St. Mike's where they had staff that were dedicated to training their instructor team students, us, uh, as outdoor guides and actually paid for us to go through our AMGA certifications and through that process, I learned how to rock climb and ice climb, became a backcountry skier. I'd always skied, um, but I really reconnected with my roots as an outdoor person, and it totally shifted my future and who I am now. And I, I very much owe a lot of uh, my professional path um, to my experience out climbing and, and skiing during that period of my time. So I wonder how many people's lives and careers have shifted due to injury and unforeseen circumstances like that. You know, it's, it seems, seems common. I mean, like yeah. high impact sports like that, it's like you're working with a very budgeted period of time and, uh, it just so happened for me. And I, I feel incredibly lucky that I was in a place where when you're going through that shift in time, it's difficult. I mean, like, I know that outdoor people experience this too, where so much of your, your personality, your friend group, your sense of purpose, your time is built around this structured activity. And as soon as that's removed, your whole sense of self, your ego, um, your understanding of what a day-to-day -day looks like just kind of falls apart. It can be an incredibly difficult transition. The amazing thing about outdoor sports, quote unquote, is uh, it helps to restore that sense of self and you really take ownership and control over it. Whereas um, in reflection on that, I, I feel like other folks were making that determination for me when I was in team sports. So I, I don't think I don't think we're alone. And I, it's it's amazing what um, climbing has personally done for me. And I've heard that story from quite a few other people as well. So you mentioned that the program at St. Mike's was quite strong for biology. Did you did you have an interest in environmental concerns and policy and climate change prior, like when you were more into hockey, or I guess like how did your interest in in environmental policy develop? To some degree, yes. Like when I was growing up in Northern Vermont, you kind of just are exposed to that and having a, you know, having a parent who was, you know, a state game warden, you're kind of always aware of kind of the ethical rules of wildlife management, land management, those types of things. I would say, frankly, that my, my interest in environmental law and policy didn't come until later when I was spending uh, an inordinate, inordinate amount of time in the outdoors, you know, building that connection to place, seeing how 
the places that we recreate change uh, from you know human caused drivers. It it that's I think really what really pushed me down that path. I knew that I loved the places where I you know I went out to go climb and ski and you know there was more to it than just like my personal passion too. I was studying wildlife biology at the time, and I knew that like there was more to it than just my personal drive to be in the outdoors. There was an inherent, an inherent value in those places. And it really like, I started to cultivate that as I spent more time in the outdoors. So I explored that in undergraduate, but afterwards I moved out to Jackson, Wyoming. Um, I was really at the time I was looking for something new. Uh, I wanted to be in the mountain West. I had spent a little bit of time skiing up in Quebec and I had taken a trip out to Montana. Um, again, all very privileged things uh, as a college student. And so I feel very fortunate to have been able to experience that. But I, I was looking for, for a way to make my, make my way west. And, uh, and, and so Jackson was kind of the place I had my eyes set on and I accepted a, a position at an outdoor education school called the Teton Science School. And really like, I loved my time there. I, basically, I got to spend time teaching ecology basically in the national park with you know mostly middle school age kids and then in my spare time i spent climbing the tetons skiing off all the high peaks exploring that region it was an incredibly uh, inspiring period of my life what i did not expect to have happen though was to be basically in the cradle of conservation the the history of the wilderness act our national parks environmental policy, especially as it's tied to the Mountain West, really, you know, I, I feel like it's tied to Jackson Hole. And there's a place there called the Murray Center in particular, and we used to bring students there. And Olas and Marty Murray are these two historical figures in environmental policy and spending time on their porch with the docent there who's telling us about, um, you know, the meeting of the minds of the conservation field there at the foothills of the, the Teton Range, thinking about how we steward our, our wilderness landscapes into the future before wilderness as a concept is what it is today. Um, that was the experience that really inspired me to go back to uh, pursue my graduate degree at Vermont Law School um, and uh, consequently also the, uh, the natural resource program at University of Vermont. So it was, it was, a combination of having these amazing experiences in the mountains. I recall several times being very humbled in lightning and hailstorms on the top of the Grand. Uh, and then again, uh, being overwhelmed, uh, having done like, you know, things like the, the, the Grand Traverse and just like experiencing big mountains for the very first time in my life, uh, while also starting to dive deeper into kind of the, the history of the environmental movement boy, it's a toxic combo. <laughs> I think everyone should have the opportunity to experience that. Toxic or enlightening? It sounds like it really struck you uh, <laughs> poignantly. <Yeah. laughs> now, that's really cool. I mean, a lot of people will talk about how it's the qualitative experience of being outdoors and people have different reactions to it, but it like really speaks to them. And then, you know, you're also like, you were knee deep in it teaching about ecology and climate, presumably climate change as well, I'm not quite sure, but mm -hmm. yeah, you get it from both sides. And so it's already always sort of uh, like percolating uh, in your brain. Yeah. And, you know, like um, before I really had, you know, the ability to, you know, affect change, I knew that from my experiences as an outdoor 
person that change was happening, whether or not like it was change that I wanted to see. At the time, you know, like I was I was seeing a lot of change in the mountains around me and being from New England, like you're kind of you're used to wild swings in weather. And so I think you're kind of like primed to be adaptable to that. Um, however, the more that I learned about shifts in the range of species in the Mountain West due to climate drivers, um, you know, seeing my first open pit coal mines and oil and gas fields, especially down in uh, the Pinedale region outside of the Wind River Range, you know, the effect that that had on me uh, as, you know, I was seeing you know, snow line recede and glaciers being impacted, having more concern about the objective hazards of rock and ice fall as a climber. Um, all of those things were kind of, were, were formative experiences before I started to work in the field that I did, but I was able to bring those subjective experiences forward later on. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the very tangible environmental changes in the Northeast sort of already happened. But the West still is so much more wild areas that it's easier to see from receding. I mean, obviously there's no glaciers up in, in this area, but you can very tangibly experience that. Wildfires are much more prominent out there as well. So it seems like it's a magnified version of uh, climactic shifts. Yeah. You know, in the Northeast, when I think about climate, I think about more precipitation falling as rain than snow. I think about a shrinking winter season. I think about um, the migration of important species, like especially for Vermont, it's like maple, <laughs> like the, the very trees that are like kind of like tied to our identity as Vermont residents. That species is, is being dramatically impacted by, by climate. But you know, it's not always like wildfire. I always think about for the West, but actually like one of the largest and most deadly wildfires that's ever happened in the United States, it was actually in Maine. It was, uh, yeah, a long time ago. I just heard about that the other day. And wildfire certainly is like something that we deal with consistently here in Washington, where I am now. It was something that I experienced in a, in a big degree, even though this past fire season wasn't the worst that's happened here in the West. Um, but Climbing up in the North Cascades this past summer, you know, you couldn't actually get over Highway 20 to the Metau Valley because there was a, the sourdough fire outside of the North Cascades uh, Environmental Institute by Ross Lake. And that fire was, you know, not humongous. It's still 5,000 acres or something like that. But the smoke of it blew all into the North Cascades this summer. And I remember distinctly being on top of Forbidden Peak with my partner. She and I were just you know, blown away by the fact that, you know, the sky just totally got smogged out. We couldn't see the massive glaciers that were in the valley next to us. And we were standing on a, a knife's edge ridge on the, one of the highest summits in the center of the Cascades. And we we're just, you know, it's, it's slightly apocalyptic. Um, climate impacts are different all over the country, but um, each of us are definitely seeing that as outdoorists and uh, it's something that I brought to my work at the Alpine Club and how I started to formulate my concept of the work that I wanted to do there. Yeah, because you you talked about how you wanted to be able to take action mm -hmm. and that precipitated going to law school and getting a master's. Um, and you ended up at the AAC. Mm -hmm. uh, you were actually there for five years as, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the the sole policy person, ended up as the policy director. Maybe we can just talk about your work uh, with the AAC. 
What were you doing there? Yeah, I started working with the Alpine Club in 2018, right out of graduate school. A woman there hired me on who was the, the former policy director. And, and I should correct you, I actually did have one colleague that uh, I brought on. Her name's Amelia Howe. She and I actually coincidentally now both work at the Wilderness Society, um, which is amazing. Amelia was a wonderful colleague, and uh, she and I worked together for a few years um, prior to her departure. And so, yeah, she and I, she and I did a lot of great work together. And then as I was kind of thinking about transitioning out, I actually brought on a, another colleague who's now the new policy director, Byron Harbison there. Um, and he's doing a wonderful job in that position. When I went to graduate school, I had a real understanding about my passions in life. And that was environmental law and policy. I wanted to make some sort of change in the world. I knew I was you know, passionate about Western public lands and natural resource management. Didn't necessarily know where I was going to take that. I also knew that on the other hand, a big part of my personal identity was tied to outdoor recreation. I found my most valuable, meaningful relationships came out of that. I was happiest when I was out climbing, skiing and biking. And merging those together was kind of like the goal for me after school. And there were a few organizations out there that were doing that really well on behalf of the human powered outdoor recreation community. And those were groups like the Alpine Club, the Access Fund, Winter Wildlands Alliance, um, the International Mountain Biking Association, Outdoor Alliance. These are groups that I had my eyes set on working for. And it just so happened that the Alpine Club had an opportunity for me and was willing to accept me in and really trusted me to help lead their policy work. Uh, and so I showed up there imagining um, a whole bunch of different things. But the one thing that I knew that was true is that um, the experiences that outdoor recreationists have while out climbing and skiing, et cetera, um, are these really important stories that are motivating and, you know, that, that have the opportunity to encourage or incentivize change. And so I wanted to figure out how to connect outdoorists uh, into the policy space and bring their stories forward. My first job when I was at the Alpine Club was really to, to focus on the climate issue. I, I saw that as an opportunity for the club. They're a hundred plus year old organization. Um, they have, you know, North America's largest archive of mountaineering literature and you know trip reports and all these things. And they've been documenting a sense of Everest since Everest was first climbed everywhere across the country. And they had a deep tie to the climbing community in inherently, but they had never formally taken a stance on climate change, even though their membership across the country had been witnessing and experiencing climate change for decades. So part of my goal was to bring that organization outside of the dark ages and to take a formal stance on it, incorporate it into our work. And the way that I went about doing that was I actually, uh, well, first, you know, I got, you know, full commitment from then executive uh, Phil Powers, who, uh, who really believed in this work. And he's a co-owner of Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. Um, now the Mountain Guides, they've rebranded since, you know, he gave me full trust to move forward with that plan. And so I put together a group of scientists from across the country, um, some really brilliant people to help basically lead the formulation of a climate policy position statement. Together, we, we, uh, we put that statement down on paper. And we also knew that our membership was relatively, you know, well representative of the American public. You know, there's as many Republicans as there are uh, Democrats that were kind of represented within the climate community broadly. And so we wanted to make sure that the statements that we were putting out were representing the interests of our community and were also going to be received well. 
And there's an organization called the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication that does this type of climate messaging really, really well. They're a group of social scientists that are well-funded. They've done tons and tons and tons of research around how the American public responds to the issue of climate. What they've found over their, their, their time is that the American public largely breaks down into six different categories uh, on the issue of climate. Everything from being alarmed and already taking action on the issue of climate, they believe the science, they believe that change is necessary to prevent the worst impacts of climate change, all the way down on the opposite end of the spectrum to disengaged, they're actively opposing climate legislation, they're, they believe that it's a hoax, et cetera. And through simple surveying exercises, you can actually figure out where your, your study population falls within that spectrum, and then tailor your message to those stakeholders whom you want to bring into your camp and encourage to take action on climate. So we partnered with them to, to understand you know, what our community as a group of outdoor people uh, really felt on the issue. And surprisingly, we actually found that climbers were more concerned about the issue of climate change than the general American public. That doesn't seem surprising based off what you said about your own experience, though, right? Because like these are people that are in the outdoors, they're seeing it, feeling it, being affected by it. So it's interesting that in this slice, it probably... It that concern spans the political spectrum. Yeah, you know, when I was thinking about it, I was like, my, my hypothesis before we did that research was that, like, of course, like, of course, like, especially people who interact with winter, like mountain environments, they're so clued into what's happening there. They're checking the climate models. They're figuring out where the snow is gonna be. They know when the next deep freeze is gonna happen, how that's affecting the ice whether or not it's going to be safe to climb because it's warming up and everything's falling down. These folks are like acutely aware of changes in the environment. And so of course they would be more aware of changes and, and if they're happening more frequently. And so that, that was my understanding going into it, but to be confirmed on the other side of that, um, we actually in that same study asked folks, you know, if you are experiencing changes in your backyard that you feel are related to climate change, would you mind sharing those stories with us? And we had something like 1,400 individual stories that people submitted from across the country um, of like, this is happening in my backyard. The snowpack is no longer here. I'm, you know, this ice climb doesn't form anymore. You know, wildfire has basically affected you know, our ability to access these climbing sites. Smoke in the valley has prevented me from taking the trips there that I used to in the past. All sorts of different stories. And so what that did for me personally was it confirmed that this was a, an important issue, one of the most important issues for, for the American climbing community. It also confirmed that as an organization, we needed to step up and stop being afraid of political backlash, of taking a stance on what, you know, at the time we believed was one of the most politically sensitive issues. Obviously there are much more, but that we needed to kind of get out of our comfort zone and take a stance on this because it was important to our membership in the climate community broadly, and so we did. But just putting words down on a piece of paper is, is one thing, taking action on that is another, and, and that's what kind of led us to the rest of our work. It sounds like a lot of the population of the AAC was concerned about climate change, sort of understood some of the factors at play that were causing it. But did you have any people that were sort of maybe more in the middle? And, and I guess, like, how did you direct communication strategies to them? How did you talk to them? And, you know, what, what did that look like? Basically, um, for those folks who are kind of at the center of the spectrum, that they're, they, they might be worried about the issue, but they're 
kind of questioning the science. They, they, they believe that something is changing, but they, they're not so sure that it's actually caused by human, human activities. Um, for those folks, those are people that you might actually be able to bring into the climate movement if you're able to reach them through your communication. The folks who are actively opposing climate legislation that are calling it a hoax, um, like our former president, um, those folks are you're not going to reach. And and frankly, it's a it's a very very small portion of the American public. They're just generally an outspoken portion, so they tend to seem larger than they actually are. The, the reality is they're quite small. Those folks that are in the middle that you, you know you could really help you build your base and influence you know uh, positive climate legislation down the road. Those folks you might be able to reach. And so spending some time trying to bring them into your camp is actually is a valuable effort. The, the way that you do that is mixed. The, the messenger typically matters. So who is actually reaching out to them? The, the way that the, the issue is presented, whether it's an issue of national defense, if it's about the future health of the next generation, if it's about um, you know, jobs and you know, the economic security of our, of our country, uh, independence, it's totally tailored to the, the individuals that you're trying to reach out to. Um, it's important to both show the, the challenge that's ahead of us, the reality that, yes, our forests are burning, the Northeast just had a crazy wet summer, but somehow, you know, was socked in by smoke from fires that were happening in Canada. And here in the, the West, we're experiencing, you know, unprecedented drought, um, but also, like it's, you know, if you continue on that trajectory of just showing what's wrong, um, it's very common for people to feel disenfranchised, and then they actually start to recede away from the issue because it's just like it's a trigger point. It's like we like I, there's nothing that I can do. I'm the the message is clear. Like the world is 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 doomed. Like this is a dead end issue. That is something that we try to avoid as environmental communicators. And, and the way that you avoid it is you show both the problem and the solution. Inversely, if you only show the solution, oh, it's just you know, wind turbines as far as you can see, and you know, the electrical grid's gonna be totally revamped and it's all gonna be EV cars everywhere. Don't worry about it. We've got all the solutions right here. Well, equally, like I have, I, the problem is solved. I don't need to get engaged. It's the trick is to show both the problem and the solution using a trusted messenger in a way that is relatable to the audience to engage those folks that are in the middle, kind of on the fence and bring them into the, the campaign. So that's something that we tried to do with, uh, with those folks in the outdoor community that did feel like they were kind of on the fence, that were questioning what, you know, what the actual contribution is of human activity to the issue of climate. And we actually did find some, some success in doing that process, but it's very nuanced, so I'll just say that. In the, the work with the AAC, how are you finding that balance? Like, what were some of the, the solutions that you were bringing forth and how are you engaging people and sort of spurring action? There's a lot of things that are important to climbers, but obviously it's the protection of our climbing sites and continued access to those places. Um, right alongside that, there's the issue of climate. There's the issue of equitable access to those places for all groups so that people can enjoy those places. So the question for me was, as a small department that had you know limited resources, what's the greatest impact that we can have on the national climbing community on these three issues? One of the, the great 
opportunities that happened a few years ago was the Biden administration really started to look at how public lands could be managed in a way that has positive benefits for our climate. Uh, they introduced uh, this campaign called the 30 by 30 campaign. At its core, essentially, it was you know a goal to conserve 30% of land and water in the United States by 2030 as an interim measure, 50% by 2050. And that's basically, you know, 20% of that was for carbon reserves across the country. And so inherently what that said to me and our team at the club was, well, if you're going to be conserving land and water for their carbon benefits and for, you know, for the climate, you know, let's talk about where the most important places are um, that are going to help us chip away at that goal, but also have co-benefits for outdoor recreation. Let's make sure that our climbing landscapes are included in that goal and are well represented and that the interests of the climbing community are incorporated into that. So it's not just like making sure that those places are conserved, but that they're open for access and they're well-managed and resourced, et cetera. So how do we basically manage our public lands in a way that have that create natural climate solutions uh, and benefit the American public? That's a humongous goal, very open-ended. And, and frankly, the, the federal government really turned to NGOs and states to really kind of help figure out what that was going to look like. And it was different in Colorado than it is in California and how it's envisioned out in the East. In particular, you know, where I grew up in Vermont, 80 plus percent of the state is privately owned and the rest is either national forest or state state management. So if you're going to reach 30% of conservation in a state, a small state like Vermont, it's entirely different than a place like Washington, where I currently live, that is if they have not already reached that goal, they are very, very close. I believe they've already reached it. So that was one thing that we were considering is like, how do we tie our public land campaigns, things that we've been doing for years to these climate goals? That was one thing. And in terms of tactics, you know, what we would typically do is engage our community uh, in that process. We would actually bring athletes and community advocates to DC to meet with lawmakers to talk about as, uh, you know, as community members from across the country, these are the things that we care about. Introduce them to climbing. A lot of folks didn't really understand, you know, how do you get the rope up there? Um, so actually bringing some lawmakers out climbing, that was another thing that we did frequently in our Hilda Crag series, where we actually introduced lo local lawmakers to climbing. We brought out land managers to talk about climbing issues uh, on the landscape. Um, and there's a lot of coalition work, you know, working with those organizations at the Outdoor Alliance on a whole host of federal public lands issues. So it was quite a bit of work, frankly. We covered a lot of different ground. Climate was always there at the forefront with us, though. You also helped introduce some first-of-its-kind research as far as examining the impact of climate change on, on winter seasons from a, a data perspective, but also a socioeconomic perspective for New Hampshire. And that's actually how I came across you. I saw the, the movie Freeze Thaw, which was sort of the end product of, of, of a lot of the work. And then, of course, I read the article and then this, this, the study. As it relates to ice climbing, do you want to talk about how that research came together and, and, and what you uncovered through that process? You know, I, I grew up in New England. Uh, that's my home. That's where my family still are. Um, the town that I grew up in was about 35 minutes, 40 minutes to Lake Willoughby about an hour to Smuggler's Notch. So I actually learned how to ice climb in Smugs, um, cut my teeth climbing steep hard routes at Lake Willoughby, you know, had my first wild, like alpine-like ice climbing experiences out in Franconia Notch, 
trying hard in, in North Conway area, like that's home, that's home. And I still believe that it's some of the best ice climbing anywhere in the world. And I've been an ice climber for 20 years. Is that right? No, 15 years or so. And uh, I've traveled all over the States. I've climbed in Cody. I, you know, I've formerly lived in Durango and climbed in Ure all the time. And still every year, you know, I, I find myself going back to New England because the ice routes there are just so damn good. That was a very formative in my experience prior to showing up to the club. You know, I still consider myself an ice climber, even though Washington's a little limited in climbing ice. You got to drive a little bit further. But I knew as, a, as an ice climber that things were changing. And I really was wondering what the effect of a, a change in climate was going to have on our ice climbing landscapes, because they were so important to me in my formulation of self-identity. After going through that initial process of developing a policy position statement at the club, you know, doing some national survey work on climate positions amongst the climbing community, I really wanted to know what, was, what we could do next. And frankly, the question of what the actual impact of climate was on ice climbing and winter climbing broadly had still not been answered. You can obviously surmise in a discussion with a lawmaker, hey, impacts are going to happen as things get warmer, ice melts, put the two and two together. <laughs> but having hard data that you can put in front of a lawmaker that has been peer-reviewed, fact-checked, that is an entirely different scenario that gives ice climbers and the climate community tools to infect change that um, had not been developed. And frankly, it had only recently been developed for the skiing community. Um, Protect Our Winners 2014 or 15, they came out with their initial report that looked at the effects of climate change on winter tourism. But really, they were looking at ski resorts and primarily the skiing population. They weren't thinking about winter climbers. They are now. Protect Our Winters is doing fantastic work now that incorporates the climbing community. But when they initially put out those findings, and then again in 2017 or 2018, they did an update to that. Elizabeth Burkowski, the professor from University of New Hampshire, was lead author on those reports, who also worked with us. You know, they were thinking about the effects on, on the skiing community. And it was, it was incredibly important. Like that work was at later cited as, uh, as literature in the International Panel on Climate Change. Uh, the IPCC report. The question for me still remained, what is the effect on the climbing community? I'm working to represent the climbing community. We need answers for our community as well. As I was going through this process of thinking about like, how do we quantify this so that we can actually present that information to lawmakers, I was starting to develop kind of an idea about how to go about this. Um, but I was very fortunate to run into a mutual friend who, who I had not met yet, uh, this, this guy named Jimmy Voris, who's also a New England guy. He and I were both living in the Front Range of Colorado at the time, and we got together and I was explaining to him about my interest of trying to quantify the effects of climate change on ice climbing and winter climbing. While we were actually out climbing one day, I believe we were in South Platte or somewhere, he says to me, he's like, you know, it's so funny because I actually started a project that I affectionately called Yankee Ice some years ago with a Nat Geo grant that was looking at this exact same thing. I was like, no shit. <laughs> like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, but we never fully completed it for XYZ reasons. And Jimmy already had this concept of how we could actually solve this problem. And it largely relied on this database that ice climbers use all the time. Uh, it was one that I turned to for conditions updates on a weekly manner when I was in New England and I was any climbs. Run by Al Hosper's local guide there in my Washington Valley. 
who goes out and takes photos. For those who don't know, local resident goes out to uh, Crawford Notch uh, near North Conway uh, to take photos of the ice roots that form on Frankenstein Cliff, one of the preeminent ice climbing destinations in New England, um, from the road and does that every week and has been doing so for 20 years. And over the period of, let's say, 2001 to 2021, I believe, he's got a 20-year record of what the ice looks like every week over a very long period of time. And Jimmy impressively saw this data set and said, wow, like we can actually solve a big, a big issue here by looking at this historical database of photos and comparing that to climate trends. And Jimmy really put this mental gymnastics together. If we can quantify from those photos, what is climbable, what is not, and then compare that to climate models, and see how the climate is changing over time, then we can put the two together and say, this climate creates climbable conditions, this climate does not. And that was, that, was the, that was the crux of the matter, and Jimmy was able to put that together. But what we needed after that was a scientist who specialized in climate modeling. And that's when we reached out to Dr. Elizabeth Burkowski at University of New Hampshire who I should mention is, uh, is giving a presentation at the Smuggler's Notch Ice Bash, January 27th in Vermont. Um, and so Liz, you know, she specializes in climate modeling. She works a lot on northern forest issues and how climate affects uh, the forest there, uh, but also is deeply you know, committed to outdoor recreation policy issues. She works with Protect Our Winters quite frequently and was, was inspired by this project and willing to lend her time. And so we got her to analyze historical climate data that was gathered at Pinkham Notch uh, outside of Mount Washington. So great place to have a case study because we had longitudinal data that looked at climate and we were able to um, gather all that up. And Liz was be able to create climate models that basically what she did for us is she was able to look at how climate has changed over time in the past. And then based off of carbon emissions, whether or not we're burning large amounts of carbon emissions, something you'd call a high emission scenario, or you know, moderate amount, maybe we potentially temper the amount of oil and gas that we burn over time, how that's going to change our climate predictions off into the future. She was able to come up with climate models under these two different scenarios, burning lots of oil and gas, emitting lots of carbon, maybe tempering that and looking at a moderate emission scenario. Our lower emission scenario, as I learned through this process, is largely not as feasible as we once believed it was, so sad to say. But she was able to look at how our climate's going to change out to 2100. And what she found during that process is by the end of the century, temperatures were going to increase to such a degree that uh, our moderate warming scenario, we would lose about 35% of our ice climbing days uh, annually. So that's shifting from roughly what has been historically about 100 days of climbable ice in Mount Washington Valley down to 65 days under a moderate emission scenario. And that's if we're able to take action on climate change and start to decarbonize. And that's if we work our butts off. On the other end, if we continue to burn large amounts of oil and gas emitting a lot of uh, carbon, we would lose about 70% of our winter climbing days in Mount Washington Valley. And that goes from 100 days annually down to 30 days. The crux of the matter was like, how do we understand change? How do we quantify it? 
the combination of this historical photo database, Liz's climate projections, putting those together and understanding that basically the absence of days below zero was going to have a direct impact on how ice formed throughout the season, when it shows up later in the fall, leaving earlier in the spring, and what that means for our ice season generally. So that was the that was the first big thing. But then importantly for us, we didn't just want to leave it at that. That's a that's a huge finding. You know, being able to quantify the effect of climate change on ice in that area was important. But it also we wanted to know more from the socioeconomic standpoint, like what does that mean for those communities that rely on ice for their livelihoods? For us, it was important to reach out to stakeholders in the mountain guiding community um, because those are our friends. Those are the people who introduced us to the sport that we love. Um, They're the people who are most acutely aware of the change and interact in that medium on a daily basis. And so they are trusted stakeholders that know this issue inside and out. And so we actually uh, brought in another scientist for this work, and that was Dr. Graham McDowell, who is based up in Banff. He's a social scientist. He specializes on researching the effect of climate on mountain communities. He's done this all over the world. He's also a rad ice climber from Vermont. He's you know, a great guy, but also a very sharp scientist. And he actually led us through the process of hosting a focus group with several mountain guides from Mount Washington Valley and asking them about uh, their understanding of climate and its impacts on the Mount Washington Valley and just generally ice climbing in the region. And what we were learning was that mountain guides were already picking up on the change. They were already seeing that winters were becoming less reliable. They were having to oftentimes shift their their dates when they actually had clients. They were seeing rain appear more frequently in the winters. Typically, you'd expect a January thaw, um, but we were having these weird thaws all throughout the winter and things were falling down and sometimes they would reform, but other times they wouldn't. And from those conversations, we started to aggregate that there were some real concerns amongst the guiding community. And first and foremost, that was safety. So as temperature continues to climb and our winters become shorter, you're going to ha- you're going to be exposed to objective hazards like icefall, rockfall. Think about climbing in the Black Dyke. You know, you never climb underneath somebody else in there, obviously, because well, you never climb underneath anybody else on an ice climb, anyways. Period. Because you're going to get decked with some ice. But frankly, now I'm personally concerned climbing in strict areas like that where you have tons of like hanging ice and debris above you. So like, frankly, the concern of melt freeze uh, cycles becoming more abundant was a big concern. There is also just generally the reliability concern where you as a mountain guide might expect ice routes to form and you're going to bring clients out to go climb at a particular place in one day and then you show up and that's just not there anymore. And also like climbing has become so much more uh, popular amongst you know, the American public that you're experiencing crowding. This was something that I didn't actually expect out of this, but if you're experiencing crowding at popular places like Franconia um, or, or Crawford Notch at, at Frankenstein, if you constrain the amount of climbing areas that are available because things are no longer forming, you get even more people falling into the same place and there's user to user conflict and so those are things that were already on guides' minds. And so the research really tried to quantify what was already being seen out there from mountain guides and how they could adapt the issue moving forward. Because we know that we can do a lot to mitigate the issue of climate change. And that's something that I'm working on now at the Wilderness Society. I can talk about that briefly. 
but we also need to be really prepared to adapt to the issue as individual users and uh, just general American citizens as well. So that was kind of the extent of it. But afterwards, it was really important for me to present this work in multiple ways. First, we wanted to make sure that it was highly regarded, well-respected, peer-reviewed work that could be shared amongst the scientific community. Perhaps our methods could be replicated in other places that you know we could present this to lawmakers or land managers and that they would really trust that what we're putting forward is highly qualified work, and it is. Um, but frankly, the reality is most folks don't wanna go read a scientific report on some journal. And so we wanted to communicate the findings of this in a bunch of different ways as well. Um, so we published a few different articles about it. Uh, and for me, importantly, I wanted to actually sh tell this story in film. Uh, and so we worked with uh, this great producer, uh, Nate Piedek, a producer at uh, Patagonia, and uh, my, my colleague Shane Johnson uh, at the Alpine Club. He and I worked really hard to gather film for this that Jimmy and Ross Henry had gathered many years before and to tell the story of this work and to get that out into the world. Um, yeah, and we're really proud of it. Like I watched the film again last night in preparation for this. And the thing that I'm most proud about this work is that when we were halfway through filming the, the project, it became abundantly clear to me that we did not have enough film. We were looking for film that showed ice climbers experiencing melt freeze that showed how water you know runs through these tube channels and like freezes from the outside in and we just didn't have the video and for us to go out and film it in the period of time that we wanted to on a budget that was already super constrained it was just impossible and so we ended up reaching out to the climbing community and said hey we're looking for this film we really needed to tell this story. Would you be willing to share it with us? And we, so we crowdsourced a lot of the footage that's in there from a lot of friends and friends of friends in New England. And it is fucking amazing that people who showed up and like poured personal film into it. And I'm just so freaking grateful uh, to the folks who contributed to it because it just made the story so much more strong and impactful. And yeah, when I watch it again, I'm just like, damn, and like community like showed up and made that, that film super strong. So I'm really proud of it. It's already showed at the Bozeman Ice Fest this year. Uh, it's gonna be showing at the Smugs Ice Fest here shortly. It's online, you can find it, it's free slot. So it's out there. I really encourage folks to go give it a watch. It is really well produced. I mean, it's, it's Patagonia quality with an AAC budget. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, we bootstrapped the hell out of that thing. And uh, Nate, to his credit, man, he like, you know, he's a genius. He like dug through tons and tons and tons of footage. We communicated the story that we wanted to tell. He worked with us to be able to put the, the best footage forward. And, you know, he's a, he's a producer that, you know, he's like, I don't take a lot of time away from work, but when there's a story that's worth telling, I do it. And when you have somebody who's motivated and talented like that, when you have a team of researchers that have put out really impactful work behind you, when you've got the climbing community helping to push this initiative forward, man, it just feels like everything's clicking. And, uh, and I think that's really what made that film so strong was it was a team community effort. So it was the first comprehensive study that could potentially be reproducible in other areas, but I, I've been reading like anecdotes and articles from like Chamonix Valley and, and the impact on mountain guides 
there because it's been unseasonably warm in in the summer. And so to the to the extent that like some routes are just not worth the, the risk anymore, which is to talk about sort of like adaptation strategy. So how might ice climbers be able to get more involved? There's a few things that I want to point out. One is because of the work that Graham and Jimmy and Liz and I did, you know, we were able to quantify what some of those adaptation measures are. Mountain guides are already Im implementing this in New England already. But the thing that we learned in that process is that each guiding company is really limited or constrained by different things. First off, you know, if you're not going to have reliable ice, what's the obvious thing to do? Well, you can go dry tooling or you can, you know, you can go do some mixed climbing, but frankly, you're limited in making that shift based off the client's interest and their ability. So you're really going to have just like those top tier clients that are, you know, really rearing to go, okay, the ice isn't great, but we can go do some hard mixed climbing and you can try that out today and that'll work. So that's one way that guides are adapting, but it's constrained based off of who you are and who your client pool is. If you are a larger guiding company where your bread and butter is 101 ice climbing days, you know, we're going to go set up some top ropes, um, you know, up at the, the workout wall in Smuggler's Notch, and we're all going to learn how to swing tools today, and that's going to be our day. Um, that's a little bit that's a little bit harder to shift to like bringing some people dry tooling. So that's kind of out. And your operating costs just may not make it feasible. So you really need to figure out, you know, and guides are doing this, like how you can work around that. And it might be that, you know, you're shifting your seasons around. You might have to be traveling more. You know, there's a lot of great ice to climb in New England. And, you know, frankly, being in a place where you can climb in Maine, New Hampshire, you know, you can go over to the Adirondacks and get to the lake, but lakes for, you know, are so hard. So maybe we go to Smugs. There's different adaptations that guides are already implementing. It's just, it's difficult, it's sticky. It's laid out in that paper. So if you want to take a look at that, there's actually some adaptation strategies that we identified in there, which is, which is wonderful. In terms of the rest of the climbing community on things that we can do on the issue of climate, investing your time, energy, and money into organizations that are already doing this work, like the American Alpine Club, Protect Our Winners, that's a great place to start. Um, dropping a couple of bucks into their their cash is uh, it goes a long ways. If you're able to do that, that's that's great. But it's hard to it's hard to like wrap your head around like what you can possibly do for for. The thing that I started to realize during my time at the club was that as I started to think more about natural climate solutions, like how the forests and public lands sequester and store carbon, and um, I encountered this study that the Wilderness Society did some years ago that identified that roughly 25% of our annual carbon emissions actually comes from federal public lands. It's primarily oil and gas driven and you know, burning of, of coal and such. And I was like, wow, like a quarter of our annual emissions come from that? Like, well, if we could just manage our federal land inventory in a more mindful way, like what, we could take a huge chunk out of the puzzle. One thing that I realized is like, if you try to do everything, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're gonna like make a very minimal dent on anything. You know, that's the reality. So choose something that's meaningful to you and pursue that in a way that, that you can passionately. And for me, it was the, you know, like that was, that was the avenue that I saw as an opportunity. As I kind of grew in this field, uh, I learned that the Wilderness Society, where I currently work, was already doing this work well, and, I, and they were excited to, uh, to bring me on to continue 
to do the work that I was already doing, but with a, a bigger staff and a bigger team. Here in the Northwest, um, when we think about carbon emissions, natural climate solutions, the forests in this region are some of the most carbon rich anywhere in the world. I mean, forests in the United States in general roughly sequester about 12% of our annual emissions. It's a humongous chunk of carbon emissions that they, they suck in every year and then store in their, their biomass or down into the soils. And the interesting thing that I learned, though, is that about 50% of that carbon uh, is stored in about 1% of trees. And so those are like the large old trees that are typical of temperate rainforest ecosystems like we have here in the Northwest that are quite rare. So if you were to look at carbon maps, and I can't say that I'm any, any sort of expert on this, but if you were to look at carbon maps, you're gonna see hot spots in places like the Northwest that run up Cascadia into British Columbia or into um, you know, Southeast Alaska, like the Tongass National Forest. Those are places that have humongous amounts of carbon already stored and some of the last remaining large old growth trees anywhere in our country. And for me, I saw that as an opportunity. I also have a background in forestry, so I'm scratching a different itch here. So I joined the team at uh, the Wilderness Society back in April and relocated from Colorado up here to Bellingham, Washington. And a lot of my work now looks at how we can manage forests in light of climate change. And there's a couple of different things that are happening right now that the ice climbing community can get engaged on, somewhat you know, tangential to what we were talking about before, but I think is important for folks to be aware of. And that is how our federal government manages our forests. There's a couple of things that are happening right now, and I'll start regionally. Um, you know, About a year ago, President Biden flew out to Seattle and he made a declaration that you know said you know our forests are important for mitigating climate change they store they sequester and store vast amounts of carbon we need to do more to protect them and especially our mature and old growth forests because they're doing so much of the heavy lifting and storing that carbon he instructed the agencies to figure out where the old growth is across the country what their threats were and how, what they can do to protect them into the future. At the same time, regionally, the Forest Service was kicking off a, a process to amend what's called the Northwest Forest Plan. It's a historically very important um, environmental regulation that is in this area. It's essentially an amendment to forest plans across the Northwest affecting about 21 million acres of forests here in Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. And a big part of the reason why that's being updated is that the plan was made during the Clinton administration in 1994, and they weren't really thinking about climate change back then. They weren't thinking about how old forests, you know, have this outsized impact on climate change. And so they're going through this process as well. How do forests affect our climate? The two of them are up and running right now. And, and the interesting thing is that um, nationally, agencies have come to the realization that we need to do more on to protect our old forests for their carbon value. And they're issuing a, uh, a proposition that would look essentially like what's happening here regionally in, in Washington uh, with the Northwest Forest Plan. I guess without overcomplicating it, there, there are a couple of opportunities right now where the climate community can get engaged and speak up for, for 
for the natural climate solutions that forests provide here in the Northwest and across the country. And uh, we can provide basically in the show notes some opportunity to learn more about that and where you can go and comment. There's a scoping period. The agencies are accepting comments right now uh, through February 2nd on the national old growth rule and through January 29th on the regional Northwest Forest Plan here in Washington. Um, and you can go and even if you were to just go and say, hey, forests are important for you know, sequestering and storing carbon, we want to see you do more to protect and restore uh, forests across the West. That would be enough. Um, so I'll say that and, uh, and that's an opportunity for folks to get engaged moving forward. So what I'm hearing uh, as an ice climber is that I should give my input about how I think these, ener these political energies should be directed as far as policy. And then I should plant some trees and I should learn a dry tool. <laughs> I think that's a good summation. And um, I feel very grateful to have that opportunity to talk about the climate research that we did at the club, how we as a community can you know, engage on this really complex issue. I think that it's really difficult to wrap our heads around the role of forests in the issue of, of climate. But uh, it's, it's a unique time in our country. You know, we're at kind of the tail end of Biden's first term and the agencies that he's put in place are really taking a lot of positive action to protect landscapes across the country and to take action on, on things like conserving maternal growth forests and thinking about the, the benefits that they serve and the fight against climate change is, you know, refreshing. Um, to have agency leadership that are stepping up to the challenge and engaging with environmental NGOs like the Wilderness Society and thinking through the challenges that are posed by managing our forests. They're, they're not just carbon sinks, you know, they burn up. Like more old growth forest has been lost to wildfire than it has to logging. And so thinking about how we can actively manage those forests and restore them as, as the climate continues to change is an investment that it's happening right now. It's an opportunity for all of us to get engaged and think about how we steward our forests. You know, that's everywhere from the Green Mountains in Vermont to, you know, the Uncle Padre in Colorado and up here into the Pacific Northwest. Um, we have old growth forests all over the country and it's just a small piece of the puzzle, um, but it's a unique one. It's low hanging fruit for us. If we just manage our land more appropriately, you know, through this lens of climate, uh, we have a real opportunity to, to make a change. As ice climbers, as winter recreationists, we know these places really well. Um, I think that sharing that, that your stories from these places, uh, pairing that with a, a call for agencies to take action is really moving. And your, your personal experience has value and sharing that is important. Um, so getting engaged on these issues is, is great. The last thing I would say, Aaron, is I really appreciate that this podcast exists. I was getting sick of looking through the Enormal Cast library, trying to find people like Aaron Mulkey. Um, so now I can just go to Ice Ice Beta and uh, I can find ice climbers like Stas Basket and learn about all of the great cool stuff that people are doing around the country. So thanks for making this resource for ice climbers. Um, thanks for doing the work that you're doing. And I look forward to tuning into more of these. Really appreciate it, Taylor. And, and thank you so much for, for the work that you've done, the work that you continue to do, and for sharing ways for people, listeners to get involved. Um, 
really important stuff and really appreciative. Yeah, right on. Well, get out there, go climb some ice while the getting's good. If you'd like to connect with Taylor, his Instagram is at Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, dot Luno, L-U-N-E-A-U. And his Wilderness Society email is tluno at tws.org. To learn more about the Mount Washington Valley study, search for AmericanAlpineClub.org plus Freeze Thaw, and you'll find the page that has the video, an article by Jimmy Voorhis and Michael Weichert, and the full study by Voorhis, McDowell, and Burakowski et al. And remember, the scoping period for the National Oil Growth Rule runs through February 2nd, while the Regional Northwest Forest Plan wraps up on January 29th, so make sure to get your voice heard. You can find all the links in the show notes at iceicebeta.com. Thanks so much for listening.